Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Joshua chapter 5. Not only will we be examining this in some depth, but we will be looking at four at least parallel passages. And so I realize this is a lot to ask, but we'll be working in the text of Scripture tonight. Because we've been studying Joshua the man in his book for almost seven months, we come with a lot of background now, a lot of context. And as you turn to Joshua 5, I would remind you of where we are. The people of God have now crossed the Jordan River. Some two to five million strong have crossed supernaturally as God made a way through the water. They've crossed the Jordan into Canaan and are now camping in enemy territory. But their feet are in the promised land now. They're just a mile and a half or so from the pagan stronghold of Jericho. The people from Jericho can look over the walls and see them. They can certainly hear them at this point. And the campaign to conquer Canaan will soon begin. And we expect to see, as we come into the land, we expect to see Israel's fighting men strategizing for battle, doing maneuvers, drilling the men, readying the provisions. But what we find in Joshua 5 is shocking. It's the exact opposite of that. What we find them doing are activities that transcend any military preparations. This text has several great lessons for us tonight, not the least of which to teach us about the importance of the sacraments. And so let's seek the help of the Lord at this time. Our Father, you have given us this word. You have inspired and preserved this word. And so, Lord, we ask for even more grace now. We ask that you would take this word, press it home to our consciences, teach us so that we might go forth from this place, not just informed, but transformed. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hope you're looking at Joshua 5, and what we see there is the church administering the sacraments, the signs of the covenant. We are a church who believes in covenantal continuity. We don't believe that these people in the Old Testament were radically different than us. We see that they're the same as us. They're sinners in need of a Savior. And we see that, according to Ephesians chapter 2, God has shattered the wall that would separate Jew from Gentile, Old Covenant and New Covenant, black and white, that God has shattered all that and made us one church. And for substance, the sacraments of the Old Testament, circumcision and Passover, are the exact same as the sacraments of the New Covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And what we see in verses 1 through 12 are the administration of the sacraments. Because we're going to see at the end of the chapter, in verses 10 through 12, Israel feeding on the Passover. And what we're going to see this evening, as I said, is we have a deep unity with these people. Yes, the outward form of the signs are different, but the substance is the same. They both, as we will see, point to Christ in his finished work. And let me remind you, as we open this exposition about how foolish God's ways seem to worldly wisdom. Because as we open the narrative in Joshua chapter 5, here are the people of God with probably around a million warriors, men who are in fighting shape. These are men who have been walking in the desert. They don't need to go to the gym to get a cardiovascular workout. They've been walking around in the heat of the desert their entire life. These are men who are hardened and ready. But I want us to think about the foolishness, at least from worldly wisdom, especially from military readiness of this sacrament. What could you think would be more destructive from a worldly perspective of these men being prepared to fight? What could be more destructive than to take these men, all of them under the age of 40, and incapacitate them and do it in the sight of their enemies who are watching from the walls of Jericho? When were these adult men circumcised? 
when they were just a couple of miles away from their enemies. This seems like utter insanity, totally foolish. Do you know what kind of position circumcision would put an adult male soldier in? We don't have to guess. The scripture even tells us so. Now let me tell you, if you are a kid, or maybe you weren't there that day in anatomy, and you're going to stop me at the back door and ask me questions about circumcision, talk to your parents. Years ago, I've told the story so many times, but I was teaching a Bible study, and I had a bunch of junior high girls sitting on the front row. And we were looking at Exodus 12 and the, the beginning and the administration of sacraments. And there was a young lady sitting there who's now a missionary. She knows better. But she was always the one who had lots of ooh, ooh, ooh questions, Carl, in the middle of whatever I was doing. She couldn't wait. And so I was teaching on circumcision. And she kept saying, Carl, Carl, could you tell me what circumcision is? And I said, go home and ask your parents. And that didn't solve the problem. She whispered, whisper, whisper the girl next to her. And they both raised their hand. And she said, Carl, could you at least draw a picture on the whiteboard? I said, no, no pictures. Well, what I want you to do is I want you to understand just how debilitating circumcision is. I'm going to try to do this with some propriety and modesty. Keep a finger here and look at Genesis chapter 34. And this will tell you Israel knew how debilitating men who were warriors would be by circumcision. In Genesis 34, we have the record of the rape of Dinah, one of Jacob's daughters. She was raped by Shechem, a Gentile, but a prince and a son of Hamor the king. And Dinah's brothers rightly and justly want revenge. Shechem, the Gentile, comes to them and says, I want to marry your daughter and your sister. And Jacob's sons say, you can marry our sister Dinah and the other women. This is a ruse. But they say to these Gentiles, but you must all be circumcised, all the men of your city, because (coughs) we can't give our sister (coughs) to an uncircumcised Gentile. Apparently Dinah was worth this. So all the Gentile men of the town lined up and said, we'll join that circumcision party. And so they were all circumcised, the whole tribe of them of Shechem. And look what happens after they are circumcised. Look at Genesis 34, verse 25 and following. It came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their city had been defiled. Now let me point out something that hardly needs pointing out. It only took two men, Simeon and Levi, to massacre a whole city of warriors. Why? Because all the men, all the fighting men, were incapacitated from the circumcision. All these men couldn't move. They couldn't fight. They could do nothing. What's the point? You don't want to put a warrior under the knife just before the battle. Look back at our text at Joshua 5. What do you see here? We see all of these fit fighting men under the age of 40. They're given the command to be circumcised, thus incapacitated for several days. Why? Listen carefully. It's good to be a defenseless army when your enemies are themselves paralyzed by fear. Look at our text in verse 1. We read, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we'd crossed over, that their heart melted. 
And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Do you see what's happening? Here are the men of Israel being circumcised. So many that were told in verse 3. It's called the hill of the foreskins. And all this takes place right under the site of the city of Jericho. Yet these people will not come out from behind their walls and take advantage of the military moment. Why? Look at verse 1. They're petrified. The Lord has put terror in their hearts. And the Israelites can do these debilitating actions right in front of them. From God's point of view, it's a perfectly wise time to circumcise the nation. Because all the men of Jericho are frightened. And God is giving the nation of Israel a preview of how he'll protect them from their enemies in days to come. He's building their faith. He's saying, see, I can protect you. I can strengthen you. All the whole nation can be down and debilitated, and I'll protect you. Your enemies won't even attack at this time. Now, what does circumcision mean? It wouldn't be wise for us to proceed any further without talking about this rite of circumcision before you just go through Joshua 5 and highlight every time you find the word circumcision, you'll find it several times. That's the theme of this chapter, <clears throat> the Old Testament sacrament of initiation. What does it mean? Once again, let me ask you to keep one finger here look at another text. Look at Genesis 17. <clears throat> I want you to see how important this sacrament was to Israel. When we turn to Genesis 17... And we see the covenant of circumcision being given to Abraham. Let me remind you of this. All of these people, two to five million strong, who are gathered here outside the walls of Jericho are direct physical lineal descendants of Abraham. And all of these people have the word of God. Now their Bible is small. They have the Pentateuch and maybe, maybe Job as their Bible. They don't have John 3.16. They don't have Matthew 1 or Ephesians 1. They don't even have the Psalms. What they have is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and maybe Job. Now, you'll make a great error if you think then, well, these people don't have the gospel. Well, you'd be sadly mistaken. They have the gospel, and we'll see this. They have all of God's covenant promises. They have the Holy Spirit. They have sacraments that point to Christ, and that's what we'll see. And these people are very conscious of the fact that they are the covenanted people of God, that God had made a covenant with their father Abraham. And since God deals with generations, and they knew that far better than we do, they know that God has made a covenant with them because they're the descendants, the generations of Abraham. They don't read Genesis 17 as, that's Abraham, he's an ancient Semitic historical figure. They read Genesis 17 and say, that's our grandpa. This is a family document. Look at what they read when they read Genesis 17. Begin with verse 4. God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. Kings shall come from you. I'll establish my covenant between me, you, and your descendants after you and their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Now here's God saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to enter into this covenant relationship with you, a bond in blood. I'll be your God, you shall be my people. And what does he promise us to do? He promises to, give, to bless Abraham and give him something since he's in covenant. 
Look at verse 4 of Genesis 17. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you're a stranger, all the land of Canaan. Now, isn't this interesting? Because here are the people of God, now in Joshua 5, they just set foot in the land of Canaan. Do you think this promise in Genesis 17, 8 means something to them now? This promise to give them the land, <clears throat> they're the descendants of Abraham. God promised to give the land to the descendants of Abraham. They're in the land. They're running around saying, this covenant theology thing is great. God promised it to our forefathers, and look at us, we're in the land. God keeps his promises. And so this land, this business of having their feet in the land is wonderful. If someone said to them that moment, do you think God keeps his promises to his covenant people? They'd say, God promised our great-grandfather Abraham to make many nations. Look at us, we're two to five million strong. God promised to give us the land. Look at us, we're in the land. Now what's the sign that you're in covenant with God? Look at Genesis 17:9. As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who's eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generation. He who's born in your house, bought with money from any foreigner who's not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And that uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. You see what God says? He says, listen, if you don't want to put the sign of the covenant on your child, then you're cut off. You're excommunicated. If you don't want to say to the world, I am in covenant with Jehovah. Me and my children are in covenant with the living and triune God. And so in Genesis 17, you see it there before you, verse 24, Abraham receives the sign as a 99-year-old man. Circumcision was the sign that you and your household were in covenant with God. We saw last week, God doesn't give us signs and say, guess what these mean? We gathered right here and we took the New Testament version of Passover, the Lord's Supper. And God has told us what it means. We don't have to ponder the meaning. We know God has told us it's a picture. It's a sign of being in union with Christ whose body was broken for sin. Well, circumcision had a deep and profound symbolism. Let me remind you of just a few things that circumcision meant. First of all, circumcision was a sign of man's natural sinfulness that needed to be removed. It signified the cleansing that circumcision did, which alone would fit that man for the presence of Jehovah. The hygienic act of removal of the foreskin symbolized the purification necessary for the establishment of a relationship between a holy God and an unholy people. A second thing circumcision did, it was a mark of distinction between God's covenant people and everyone else in the world who were strangers to the covenant. That's why Paul in Ephesians 2 calls the covenant people the circumcision and everyone else the uncircumcision. That's why David, when he comes in 1 Samuel 17 to the front lines and he hears Goliath spouting off his blasphemous taunts against the people of God, he turns to his brothers and he says, how dare you let an uncircumcised Philistine talk that way to you? 
This is why Saul in 1 Samuel 31, when he sees that battlefield death is imminent, he turns to his armor bearer and says, listen, run me through with this sword because I don't want to die at the hands of these uncircumcised Canaanites. Circumcision made a distinction between God's people and all others. But there's another thing that circumcision means. Circumcision preached the gospel. Circumcision looked forward to the Redeemer who would come and take away the uncleanness of his people. Now, circumcision, every time it happened, it was preaching the gospel, pointing towards Christ who would come and cleanse the flesh. Now, don't make a mistake at this point. Don't think that the people of God in the Old Testament were just doing an empty rite that they didn't understand and they were clueless. They understood. They understood that circumcision, the outward act, pointed to an inward reality. And I want to make you work a tiny bit harder now. Look at Deuteronomy 10. Because what I want to convince you of tonight is what I said by way of preface, that we and our old covenant brethren for substance are the same and the sacraments are the same. These people who were under Joshua, they knew and understood. This is their Bible. When I tell you to turn to Deuteronomy 10, this was part of their canon of of Scripture. This is their revelation. At this point, this is the last part of their Bible. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, look what God says. Moses is preaching a series of sermons here in Deuteronomy, his last sermons before he goes home to be with Christ. And he reminds the people, look at Deuteronomy 10 verse 15. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples as it is to this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And be stiff-necked no longer. When Moses says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, he's saying, listen, the outward act of circumcision of the flesh, yes, it's important, it's vital. But it must point to a deeper reality. When Moses says to the congregation of Israel, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, that's just like me saying to you, repent of your sin. That's exactly what it means. So don't think these people are wandering around the wilderness, clueless, doing empty rituals. They got it. They understand this was a picture of Christ. Now, right now, you're scratching your head. All of this begs the question that you should be asking right now. Why weren't all these men already circumcised? If God had clearly said in Genesis 17 that children would be circumcised on the eighth day, they should know from the word that God was angry with them. And that's not too strong a word, as you'll see in a moment. God is displeased with those who ignore and neglect his covenant signs. Because there have always been those in every generation who say, I'm a heart religion guy. I don't go in for signs. I don't put any stock by rituals. I skip over the sign. I just go straight to the reality. Not one for signs. Heart religion guy here. Moses said the same thing. And it almost got him killed by the Lord. Look at Exodus 4 how God dealt with him when he shirked the sign. In Exodus chapter 4, you'll remember the context. Moses had been called to be the deliverer of Israel. He's on his way there to be the redeemer of God's people, the one to lead them out of bondage. Moses is going to Egypt, and he has with him his wife Zipporah and his adult son Gershom. And then you find this strange narrative. And no one can ever say to you again, well, God doesn't really care about the sin, the sign. It doesn't matter, for example, if my children are baptized or not. Look at Exodus 4, verse 24. 
It came to pass on the way, and I'll sort out the personal pronouns for you so there can be no mistake. It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, that's Moses, and sought to kill him, meaning Moses. Then Zipporah, that's Mrs. Moses, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son Gershom, the adult, and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you're a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Now look carefully at verse 26, and I want to interpret the personal pronoun so there can be no mistaking. Who's the he and the him in verse 26? God let Moses go then, after the circumcision. God was going to kill Moses because he hadn't put the sign on his son Gershom, because he had shirked the sign. So don't say to me, the sign really isn't the big issue. My friends, it's a huge issue. Why is God displeased? Why is he about to kill this man he's raised up to be the deliverer? Moses was in serious trouble because he hadn't circumcised his son. But what we find in Joshua 5, when we look back to our text, here's a whole generation of men, a million of them. Remember the hill of the foreskins that didn't have the sign of God's covenant upon them? Well, what happened? Was there an administrative slip-up? Why did these million men not have the sign of circumcision in their flesh? We're told in our context. Look at verse 5 of Joshua 5. All the people who'd come out under Moses and Joshua had been circumcised. But all the men born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they didn't obey the voice of the Lord. Here's the short answer. The reason none of these men were circumcised is because, and Hebrews tells us this, their parents were unbelievers. And the parents didn't lay hold of the covenant promises of God. The covenant God had made with their father Abraham said their children would inherit the land. They didn't believe God's covenant promise. They said, I I don't believe the promise God has made. And so that's why when they came up to the doorway at Kadesh Barnea of the promised land, they stalled and turned around and went backwards. They didn't believe that God would keep his word and take them into the land. So if they didn't believe that, why should they believe and obey God's command to put the sign of the covenant on their children? The circumcision that we see in Joshua 5 was an act of great trust on the part of the nation, unlike their wicked, faithless, unbelieving, now dead parents. These people, these million men, had to trust God that he would be their protector and they could put no reliance on the flesh. Right at the outset of the Canaanite campaign, they have to show their powerlessness and their dependence on God's might. They also, and this is a segue for us, They also had to be fit to celebrate the Passover. Just as someone cannot come to the Lord's table until they've been baptized, so in the Old Covenant, no one could, according to the laws given in Exodus 12, no one could eat Passover who'd not first been circumcised. Something needs to be pointed out, and this is kind of staggering. At this point, not only had no one been circumcised for 40 years, the sign of initiation into the people of God, No one had celebrated Passover for 40 years, the sign of continuation. How would you like to go without baptism in the Lord's table for 40 years? That's what had happened to a whole generation. They'd not seen the sacraments. They'd not valued them. But now these people in Joshua 5 are partaking of both sacraments, the sign of entrance and circumcision 
and the sign of continuation in Passover. They are declaring to the world in the sight of the Canaanites perched along the city walls of Jericho, God is our God and he is our children's God and we are in covenant with him and here are the signs. But look at verses 10 through 12. After the circumcision party, I probably should come up with a better name for it than that, we see Israel celebrate the Passover in verses 10 through 12. And when they take the Passover, this is not some distant, foggy event. This is something their parents had celebrated just before they left Egypt 40 years ago. This, again, is family history. When they think on Passover, they think, oh, yeah, Mom and Dad did this just before we left Egypt. Mom and Dad, they painted the blood on the doorpost. Mom and Dad, they killed the lamb. Mom and Dad did this. Now, Passover to them was no empty symbol or celebration. Passover spoke to them. It preached the gospel. Listen to all the things Passover reminded them of. Passover reminded them of God's sovereignty, that God had distinguished between them and all other nations. He had been particularistic. He had distinguished between Israel and Egypt. Passover spoke to them of God's sovereignty. Passover is not for everybody. It's just for my people, says the Lord. Passover said more. Passover demonstrated God's grace. The Israelites were no more deserving than any other nation. They're probably less deserving of God's favor. But God didn't deliver them on the basis of their deserving. He delivered them on the basis purely of grace. Passover also said more. It spoke to them of God's righteousness, that the guilty cannot be cleared. God will not wink at sin. Blood must be shed for sin. In this case, it's the blood of a spotless lamb. It says even more. Passover spoke to them of God's mercy, that God not only demanded blood, but he provided the substitute, the spotless lamb. And Passover also spoke to them of God's faithfulness. God had said to them, to every Israelite, no matter how young, no matter how old, when I see the blood on the doorpost, I'll pass over and spare your children. And he did. God had been faithful to spare every home where the blood of the lamb had been smeared over the household. Well, think about the celebration of Passover. I hope you're looking at verses 10 through 12, and let me be very clear here. If you read verses 10 through 12 and you say, interesting historical narrative, Carl, but don't get the point, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Christ is all through verses 10 through 12. Because what these people are doing as they take the Passover, they're not just looking backwards and saying, yeah, that was a neat event that happened 40 years ago. They're anticipating the one to come. The fulfillment of this whole sign. Each time Passover was celebrated, Christ was being anticipated and looked for. We know from 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Christ is called our Passover. But how specifically, when you read verses 10 through 12, how specifically did this Passover point to Jesus? Look carefully with me at verses 10 through 12. First, it points to one who would be a lamb taken from the sheepfold. In the regulations given for Passover in Exodus 12, we're told that you have to take a lamb who is among the sheep. You can't go out and bring in a ringer. You have to take in a lamb from among the sheep just so the Lord Jesus had to come and be one of us. He had to come and take real flesh and blood humanity. The writer of Hebrews says, since the children are partakers of flesh and blood, Christ likewise must take part of the same. Our Christ must be a lamb taken from among us. Secondly, how does this point to Jesus? People were told in Exodus 12 that this lamb, the Passover lamb, had to be without spot or blemish. 
It points to Christ, the only one who ever could live a holy life, who could say he's unstained by sin. Repeatedly, the gospel writers take great pains to point this out, that Jesus never sinned in word, thought, or deed. He's the lamb without spot or blemish. He's the perfect fulfillment of the type of the Passover lamb. But a third way this preaches Christ, Passover, the lamb must be slain by the people. What we see when Christ comes, the whole nation is crying out by the time we get to Mark 15, crucify him. It's not enough that Jesus just received a beating, that he bleed profusely, he must be killed. Passover also preaches that blood must be applied. Specific regulations are given in Exodus 12 that you can't just slit the throat and let the blood run on the floor, no. The blood of the lamb then had to be taken and carefully painted in cruciform form, shape over the doorpost. The blood had to be applied to the house. And just so the blood of Christ must be applied to us. We must appropriate it. We must have the blood on us as we receive Christ by faith and repentance. In another way, this Passover preaches Christ. This Passover in every tent, very great care was taken according to the regulations in Exodus 12 that not a bone of the Passover lamb could be broken. All this points to the Lord Jesus who would come. The gospel writer tells us in John 19, perhaps the greatest miracle surrounding the whole physical scene of the cross that not a bone of Christ was broken. Why? So that he could be the perfect fulfillment of the type of the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. My friend, don't think these people in Joshua 5 are bumbling idiots in the wilderness who have no sense of the gospel. When they take Passover in verses 10 through 12, they're longing for a redeemer. They're looking in faith for a redeemer. We are one with them in that sense that we too are looking to Christ. How do we apply this word? Let me make three brief applications. First, no matter what our circumstances are, the exercises of true religion must always be our first priority. Think about it. Here are the people of God. Can't you hear what we would say, perhaps, if God says, okay, I know you're in Canaan. You can see the city of Jericho right there. You take a break for several days and engage in circumcision, then the Passover. We would say, Lord, you know, let us, let us clean up. Let us do the mop-up exercise and wipe out all the enemies. And then when we have a peaceful day, we'll come back around and engage in your ceremonies then. No. Not security. Not the attaining of our safety. But pleasing and honoring God and obeying him according to his revealed word must always be our first priority. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Christ must have the preeminence in all things. Is this your attitude or do you say, listen, when I get everything squared away, I'll make some time for worship and obedience. Now, especially the sacraments. I can't take time to obey and worship. It takes so long. Maybe later. What this text tells us is worship, the ministry of the word and the administration of the sacraments are always the priority, even above our safety. They must always come first, no matter what our circumstances are. A second application. This text should teach us to place our implicit confidence in our God, even in the midst of great danger. All these exercises that we read about, the circumcision, the recovery, the celebration of Passover, 
All these took place under the watchful eyes of the citizens of Jericho who were on the wall, staring. You think they're in great danger, wouldn't you? When will we learn that we should be far more fearful of of offending God than fearful of enraged Canaanites? This text shows us that these people were marked by the fear of the Lord. They said, we're not worried about worldly men, those Canaanites on the wall, who will be upset with us or who may try to take advantage of us. We have the fear of the Lord, and so we want to please him first. Why should we fear men? They know what David will record in Psalm 23, hundreds of years later. They know that God could provide a table for them in the presence of their enemies. We should be far more fearful of offending a holy God than we should of offending those in the world. But a final application. This text shows us our need of Christ. To be the circumciser of our heart. For him to take away our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. This text shows us our need of Christ, the Passover lamb, for his blood to be sprinkled upon us. For his righteous, innocent blood to cover us. You don't have to look hard for the gospel of Christ. He's on every page of the Bible. Where do you see him in Joshua 5? He's the one who's the fulfillment of this whole picture of circumcision. He's the one who takes away the reproach of the flesh. He's the one who's the fulfillment of Passover. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So may the signs of the new covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which have replaced the bloody signs of the old covenant, may these signs of the new covenant continually, every time they are administered, point us to Christ as he goes before us and subdues all his and our enemies. Let's pray. Our God, how we praise you that you not only made great promises to us, sworn covenant oaths to us, but you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be our covenant mediator, and you've even given us glorious signs of this covenant. Oh Lord, we pray that both with baptism and the Lord's table, where we have beforehand thought little of them, we would take them with the utmost of seriousness, And with serious joy, participate in them. For, Lord, we see how gloriously they point to Jesus. Oh, Lord, how we thank you that every time someone has been baptized here, every time we've taken the Lord's table, you've held before us a picture of the gospel and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we pray that in days to come at Woodruff Road, the word and the sacrament would be accompanied with power